We all are eating highly processed, highly refined foods, all of which are terrible for our bodies. They don't do anything for our gut. I mean, there's data on dairy triggering inflammation. There's data on highly processed foods triggering triggering inflammation, um, how sugars trigger inflammation. And so all that stuff that we're eating on a daily basis, these quick eats are hurting our body. This is the Plant Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode, or welcome if this is your first time here. I appreciate each and every one of you, and I'm so happy to be able to share these conversations with the world. So the theme of today's podcast is inflammation. We've all heard the word thrown around, but what really is inflammation? Why does it lead to disease, and what can cause it in the first place? Well, my guest today will definitely answer these questions and more. Plus, she has her own incredible personal story to share. So joining me today is cardiologist Dr. Monica Agarwal. She is an associate professor of medicine in the University of Florida Division of Cardiovascular Medicine and serves as the director of integrative cardiology and prevention. She is board certified in cardiology, echocardiology, and nuclear cardiology, and is a fellow of the American College of Cardiology, where she is a member of the Nutrition Council working on nutrition policies for the nation. Uh, She is also the Director of Medical Education for Cardiology, where she directs education for medical residents and cardiology fellows, with a focus on prevention, nutrition, and lifestyle. In the hospital, she has multiple initiatives, including developing a 100% plant-based menu for cardiac and vascular patients. Dr. Agarwal specializes in preventative management of heart disease with lifestyle techniques in conjunction with medications, where she emphasizes plant-based nutrition and utilizes other mind-body techniques like yoga and meditation. So her mission is to educate people on why the modern diet is a problem and how it creates chronic illness. She would like to give people practical tools on how to implement a new and improved diet and lifestyle. So in this episode, we talk about her diagnosis with rheumatoid arthritis and how she healed herself, how inflammation is at the root of all disease, the best diet for heart disease prevention, uh, breath practices she does with her patients, and really so much more. I truly love this conversation. She really is an inspiration to me, especially as I enter my third year of medical school. And actually, she even shares some of her wisdom for young women striving to make an impact in male-dominated fields like cardiology in our conversation. So stay tuned for that. All right, almost there, but one last thing before we dive in. Imagine. It's a calm summer morning. Sun beams through the trees, and they sparkle as they catch the morning's dew. A lone pelican glides swiftly through the light breeze, landing gracefully on a nearby pond. Unfortunately, you're not enjoying any of this because you're playing golf. They say golf is a nice walk ruined, but not when you're using golf accessories from warlockgolf.com. Warlock Golf is a Canadian-based company rooted in small-town Manitoba that understands that golf is supposed to be fun. That's why they offer a variety of -of one-of-a-kind ball markers and golf accessories that'll add some serious style to your game. So add some fun back into your game by visiting warlockgolf.com and using discount code PLANT15 for 15% off your order. That's code PLANT15 for 15% off your order at warlockgolf.com. All right, now on to the conversation with Dr. Monica Agarwal. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Agarwal. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. There's so much I want to discuss with you, but um, I really think the obvious place to start is with your own personal story. So I know you've told it lots in the past, but if you don't mind, can you share how it came about that you were diagnosed with uh, rheumatoid arthritis? Sure. 
So uh, I um, have been a cardiologist now for 10 years, uh, maybe longer uh, now, weird. Um, and when you're in your training for medical in medicine, you go through medical school, then you do three years of an internship and residency, and then you do three years of a fellowship all coming your way. Um, and so you'll be seeing this maybe it may or may not be. And so by the time you actually finish, you are kind of older and you want to have kids. Um, and we're not really, it's probably changed a little bit now, but in the past we weren't really, it was not really looked, it was frowned upon not to have children in your training. Not that you couldn't, it's just that there was always a lot and most of your colleagues are men and nobody really ever wanted uh, to take take the call and the extra call because a woman was on maternity leave. So a lot of us maybe felt that pressure and didn't go through, uh, didn't decide not to get pregnant until we finished. The problem with that is when you, if you want to have a couple of kids like I did, then you really sort of feel like this pressure to kind of take, have some kids. So I had a few miscarriages um, before I had my first child, um, which also became complicating for me. Um, And then ultimately when I became pregnant, it was the greatest thing ever. Uh, I couldn't imagine a greater experience um, because it had been so hard for me to get to that point. And then I had um, three kids in quick succession. So I had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a, and a newborn. So that is crazy. And um, then on top of that, I was a full, full-time physician. And so your life ends up being this one big blur of not really sleeping that much, trying to be really good at being a physician, which you suck at because you're overtired. And then trying to be a really good mom, but you suck at that too, because you got three little kids under four years old. So I spent a lot of time in this weird world of guilt and stress and tension and just trying to do everything right and feeling like you get nothing right. And I say that because a lot of the um, podcast listeners may be women and they struggle with these same issues in so many ways. And I just want I'd like people to know that they're not alone and it's really, it's a crazy imperfect system. And, um, so after I had my third child, I, um, went back to work after six to eight weeks. So I'd come home, I try to nurse the kids. I tried to make them pureed sweet potatoes. And then I'd run home and I told my husband, don't feed the baby because my breasts were engorged and I wanted to feed the baby before. So I didn't have to pump because the pump is like your biggest nemesis when you work. Uh, and when you have kids. So I was running around this crazy life and I was overtired all the time. And about four months after I had baby number three, I started manifesting joint pain. Um, I'm a runner. I've always been a runner. I always active. I live out in the, I used to live out in the country. Many reasons you might have some joint pain. You could hit anything. You think about it for about one second and you move on. And I remember though, I, I often find myself rubbing this finger because this is the one that it started with. And so I remember the pain that felt, felt like I must've hit something and then it would go away. And I it migrated around my body to my shoulders. Some days I couldn't lift my shoulders. A lot of time, then it went to my other hand. Um, then it was my feet. And the feet were the one that I often tell because I was amazed. 
I used to think there was like glass cutting through my feet. So that's what it feels like. It feels like there's glass cutting your feet all the time. So I changed my shoes three times because I insisted that it was my shoes and not me. Heaven forbid it was me. So, um, I, um, was overtired, taking care of three small children, working a full-time job, and then started developing this pain. And I quickly went from being an active runner and full-time doc and mom to being completely immobilized. And that happened over just a couple of weeks. I, I couldn't walk. I couldn't um, move my shoulders. I remember wanting to write letters to baby clothes companies because I couldn't do the snaps on their clothes. And I thought that that was, uh, I thought they should make different clothes because again, not me, that's the problem. It was the clothes. So about four and a half, maybe five months, you know, it changes every time in my head when it happened about four to five months after the baby came, baby three came, I went from being this active person to being completely immobile. Um, I often have told the story before of how I had this really bad moment in life, which continues to always give me pause, um, which is when the baby woke up at, at around 4 a.m. And uh, or maybe I'm sorry, my alarm went off at 4 a.m. so I could walk the dogs, take the dogs out, start feeding the dog, feed, feed, get the food, get the babies who go to daycare food, then I could nurse the baby, pump for the baby, all the stuff that needed to be done before I had clinic. And I started my clinic at seven because I needed to be home at a good time because I had to pick up my kids. So I had the 7 a.m. clinic start time. And so I remember that hobbling down the stairs that day and the dogs barked or something happened and the baby woke up. And I was like, oh my God, the baby's going to wake up the other two. And anyone who's had multiple kids, like that's like DEFCON 5. And so I start, um, I tried to run up the stairs and I just couldn't get there. I mean, I, my husband found me that day at the bottom of the crib because um, I'd crawled up the stairs and um, I was crying because, uh, and the baby was crying because I couldn't actually get up to lift the baby out of the crib because my shoulders were so inflamed. Um, and so that's when, uh, and he had to pick up the baby to give him to me so I could feed her. So that's when I knew I had a really bad problem, um, and treated it like a terrible doctor. And I treated myself for Lyme disease because it was migratory joint pain. And, you know, I figured I knew what I was doing and why would I have anything but Lyme disease? So I treated myself and I didn't get better. Uh, and I got worse, um, to the point that I, really could do almost nothing. Uh, and I went to a doctor and they told me I had a debilitating form of rheumatoid arthritis. And therein, then, then uh, there, there my life changed. Thank you so much for sharing your story. That's incredible. I've heard it told a couple times before and it's still, I can't imagine having to go through that and having to try and keep your life together and so and play so many different roles and try and do them all perfectly. So once you were diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, what kind of happened from there? When did it like when did you discover that lifestyle played such a role in the prognosis and how your disease um made you feel day to day? So um I, when I went to the rheumatologist, he told me that my course was very debilitating. I overall had a poor prognosis and that I needed to get on medications within a week. 
What that means is that you get on these medications that are completely impossible to have while you're nursing. So he said, I had one week to wean the baby off of the breast, uh, which anyone who's ever breastfed a child knows that that may be the hardest thing I've ever done um, to walk away from a crying baby with milk pouring out of my breasts and not being able to feed the baby was maybe the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, but I did it. And then I started on uh, med medications um, that that made my hair fall out. Uh, I, I had a metallic taste in my mouth all the time. Uh, I lost a lot of weight. People admired me because I lost all my baby weight after baby number three um, because I just couldn't eat. Um, and But I got better. My joints got better. There's no question the medicines worked. Uh, they just came with them a whole host of side effects and a, and a dread feeling. You know, I think as a physician and as a cardiologist, I give up medications all the time, but I learned quickly that when you are the patient, you're it's totally different. You hear the doctor say, um, you know, this is only a one in a thousand chance, but as a patient, you think, oh, I am that one in a thousand. I think it really changed who I was to understand what it was to be a patient, um, so about four, maybe four or five months, a couple months later, I uh, was doing an event. I was doing a community fair. I did a lot of sort of preventative fairs. And um, a woman came to me. She said, I want, I want to be part of your fair. And, um, and I said, you know, she was a nutritionist or nutrition coach. And I said, I, I don't know, you know, we don't really have space. And she said, well, let me do your profile and see if you have um, anything going on. And I was like... <laughs> I was kind of a jerk. Uh, uh, Karen and I become became great friends after this because I was a jerk and I quickly became bewildered by what she taught me because what she started doing is she started making me think about the impact of what you eat and that what you eat could actually matter. And obviously as a physician, you know that eating toxic foods or unhealthy foods can uh, then affect your heart and your body, but you don't really fully understand what those toxic foods are and how those things can affect your body. And that certain foods that we all think are sort of healthy are actually maybe not so healthy. And so I started learning about the gut. I spent some time at Harvard. I went over to meet different professors at different places, just trying to learn and understand the role of diet, the role of lifestyle, the role of the gut biome, which I think is the key, um, and sort of how that impacts inflammation, which inflammation is the key to illness. Um, reducing inflammation is the key. And that's why, you know, the title of our book, of course, is Body on Fire. And so, you know, we're trying to figure out that link and that link is really the key. And it it was that process of somebody saying to me, Hey, look, what are you eating? You know, and telling me that maybe the food that I thought was healthy wasn't really changed everything for me. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so are you on any medications right now? No, I have been on no medicines in, let's see, the baby is now older, he's <laughs> now 10. So I have not been on any medications in at least eight years. It's an, a remarkable story. I love hearing it. Um, do you think that obviously you, you changed your diet, you changed your lifestyle, you started addressing sleep properly, nutrition, all these other factors. Do you think that this was a one-off for you? Like, do you think you were lucky to be able to come off all your medications or do you think this is just as possible for some other patients diagnosed with the form of RA that you had? So I must get um, five or six emails a week mm -hmm. with this very question. And so I'm glad you brought it up and hopefully 
your podcast will get out there for people to hear? And so the answer is both. I think that the more severe your illness, the harder it is to recover. I think that change is hard. And I think that the gut takes time to recover. And I think that we all come to every situation with different baggage and different different history. And so not everybody will come off of medications, but many people will, or some will, and many people can at least reduce their symptoms. And so I, I work with patients now every single day with this question and they, you know, not everybody comes off everything, but a lot of people do. And I'm not a rheumatologist, so I would never try to advise somebody about how to treat their rheumatologic illnesses. I can teach people how to eat uh, and how to eat healthier and how it helped me. And I, when I teach, take care of cardiac patients, I change everything because I, I am capable of teaching people how to eat for cardiac illness. But rheumatologic illness is a funny thing, but I do know that it's all about the inflammation. And if you can calm the inflammation down, and you find the triggers for your body, you can absolutely get better. It's all about genes and epigenetics. It's all about the fact that you have your genes. You can't change your genes because that's what your parents gave you. But what makes those genes express? Well, that's the epigenetics. That's the things surrounding the gene, the things that trigger the gene to express or how severely it expresses. And so much of the time, that's what you're doing in your in your around that's triggering the gene. So that's your lifestyle. And so why did I get rheumatoid arthritis after my third child? Well, yes, people say, oh, it's hormonal because I was postpartum. Yeah, it probably was, but I had two other kids as well and it didn't trigger. Why at that very moment? Well, I was sleeping four hours a night. I was totally stressed all of the time. I was eating as a, I was a junk food vegetarian. And, um, I, you know, there, there, I was, I was, why shouldn't I get it? I was prone. I was so inflamed and irritated. That's the funny thing is that we always say, well, why me? You know, like, why not me was the answer. What question I should have asked because I did everything wrong. Everything I thought was right was incorrect. And so much of the time when working with patients, you have to tell your, forgive yourself what you, for what you did or didn't do and learn how to fix it and say, look, this is not about fixing the reminiscing or saying what you could have, could have, uh, could have, should have done in the past as much as seeing what you can do to fix the future. That's really good advice. I think you're right. People get too caught up and they feel guilty. And instead of making change moving forward, they're just like, oh, I wish I had changed years ago, but it's, well, it's can't say never, but it's, you can always benefit yourself from making changes, which I'd love to get into that a little bit more um, a bit later. But first, I'd like to dive into inflammation a little bit more. So you mentioned it already, the inflammation being the root cause of many of these chronic diseases. But can you talk about what exactly is inflammation, like what causes it, and then maybe just the difference between acute inflammation and chronic inflammation? I feel like the word is just thrown around a lot. Yeah, it is thrown around a lot. I mean, inflammation is your body's irritation. If you think of it that way, I think that helps. There's a benefit to irritation because when in an acute situation, you fall off of a, you fall out of a car or your son is falling down a slide out of control and you need to catch him 
and you hit your, uh, or you're running from a robber, you know, your sympathetic, your fight or flight response triggers, which is a good thing. We, it, and with that comes uh, a whole host of inflammation and triggers and stress. And these things are good because you got to get away from, you got to catch the kid. You got to, um, you got to take care of the stressful situation or whatever it is. And so acute stress and acute inflammation are not bad. We need them because we need to be able to heal our bodies from a, an acute problem. The problem that happens is that most of us live in the state of chronic inflammation, which is that our body is constantly fighting and not healing. And so in the times when there's this imbalance between what we are giving and what we are receiving, so to speak, um, there's that imbalance, you're going to trigger inflammation. There's going to be inflammation, but it's going to be chronic. And so when there's chronic inflammation, there's chronic inflammatory cells all over your body. And what happens is, is that, so your genetic makeup is your genetic makeup, but you, you can't change that. But then that inflammation comes and whatever you were prone to tr to already get, then it gets activated and flares. So then that's why the key is to treat that inflammation and you could potentially not get that illness. Or if you do get the illness, you can calm it. Okay, great. Um, so what are some of the most common, I guess, triggers of inflammation? And then what can people actively do to counter that? Yeah, so it's a good question. I don't think we know fully all the answers to that. But most of the time, the big, some of the big ones that we do know are things that are, are stressors on the body and on the, and on the mind. So emotional stress, job stress, person personal stress between partners and friends, uh, work stress, uh, all those stresses are very real and important. Again, short amounts of stress, no big deal, but it's that chronic. Now, lack of sleep is a huge stressor. And for me, I used to wear it as a badge of honor. I only slept four hours. I aced the test. You know, I felt like it was a, something I should be proud of, you know? And so, you know, that's what we do in medicine, especially is that we pride ourselves on being able to do so much with so little. And we think that that's makes us good, but that's that lack of sleep is horrible for our body. And it promotes a chronic state of inflammation. Think about how, when you study for a test or when you're overtired, what happens? Well, you get a cold, you always get sick. It's because your body over time, it can't fight. It's just so much inflammation and your, your immune system can't handle it. And so, you know, you have to, so lack of sleep, um, high levels of stress, poor nutrition, uh, lack of activity. These are sort of the big four in my world and what I believe and really focus on. And, you know, we all are eating highly processed, highly refined foods, all of which are terrible for our bodies. They don't do anything for our gut. And we live in this state of, uh, they, they trigger inflammation. I mean, there's data on dairy triggering inflammation. There's data on highly processed foods triggering, triggering inflammation, um, how sugars trigger inflammation. And so all that stuff that we're eating on a daily basis, these quick eats, are hurting our body. And then we're not moving as much. And that sedentary lifestyle leads to obesity, which triggers inflammation. So all these things were creating this like Pandora's box of, of inflammation. And all you don't want to open that thing up because if you do, it will totally explode in your body. Like it's that much. And we don't realize it because when we're in our 20s, we think that, oh, you know, we are in, you know, we cannot get hurt. And 
arguably you can't because you're so young, you have those, you, your body has only just effect been affected by insults so much of the time. But then we start getting older and it's longer amounts of inflammation and eventually the body falls apart. So you start seeing it. And that doesn't mean that nobody gets sick in their twenties. It just means that that's why 20 year olds think, Oh, I'll be fine. I'll deal this when I'm thirties or my forties. But the irony is that's not how this works. You know, you have to kind of take care of yourself at every age at the same time, you don't say, well, gosh, I should have done it. Now I'm screwed. I can't fix anything. Well, that's not true either. At any time that you start, it's the right time to start, like go for it. And you can, you can make change and you'll feel better. It's super empowering. Um, I'd like to focus in on heart disease and some of the, um, diseases of the cardiovascular system that you see most often in your practice, um, as a cardiologist. So can we talk a little bit about the role of inflammation and how that directly um, can increase risk of heart disease or some of the common conditions that you see in your practice? Sure. So if you think about plaque, if you think about plaque, plaque is something that I deal with every day. So you get, you have these heart arteries and the heart arteries are called coronary arteries and they're like little pipes. And those little pipes are on top of the heart, but they actually feed the heart. And their job is if they, to bring blood flow to the heart so the heart can squeeze so then blood can go out to your body. And those little pipes, those coronary arteries are prone to plaque formation. And that plaque formation happens because too much saturated fats, you get high and high cholesterol. Um, it can happen because of high blood pressure, smoking, and you get these little plaques that form in your heart. And then those plaques form in your heart. And what happens is that your, your blood vessel, instead of looking like this, gets a little bit of this. And that's your little plaque. Well, the blood flow is still pretty adequate and the blood flow can go right past. And so you do okay. Most people don't feel that at all. But then over time, over time with more poor habits, more and more habits, this blood vessel can close. So then all of a sudden there's less blood flow going through your pipe. And so that's why people get, they start exercising and the, body, the heart says, and the body says, I need more blood. And the heart's like, what are you talking about? I'm working here. And it's trying to get through this little bit of space right here and trying to get blood to the rest, to the heart, so the heart can pump to the body. So that's heart plaque that builds up, but that's actually not the biggest problem. The other problem is, is that sometimes those plaques just stay really small. And then what happens is, is that these plaques become inflamed or irritated and they rupture. And this little tiny plaque that wasn't causing any trouble completely closes the blood vessel. That's an acute heart attack and causes people to call 911. That's the acute uh, going to the heart catheterization lab. That's the stents. That's the sudden death. That's all due to inflammation. And if you inflame that plaque and it ruptures, you're going to have a heart attack. The problem is we don't know how to fix them. So some people say when they hear that from me, they'll say, well, let's just stent all of those plaques. Well, you can't do that because it, it would be literally like stenting the entire heart arteries because so many people have little 10, 10, 20% plaques in their heart over the entire vessel. So which one are you going to stent? All of them? And don't forget that stents come with their own host of issues. So the key is to keep those plaques small by all those good healthy habits and then to decrease that inflammation so those plaques don't rupture. And all the studies that we're doing now is really to understand how to decrease that inflammation. There's a medicine called kenyakinumab, which has come out in the last couple of years that studies that Paul Ritker has been studying or you actually just focuses on decreasing inflammation. And statins have been shown that despite your 
cholesterol, your LDL cholesterol, if you decrease those inflammatory um, numbers, then you're going to decrease overall risk. So it so inflammation plays an absolutely important role in your long-term heart health. So keeping your inflammatory markers low and decreasing your overall inflammation is the key. And you could say that for so many things, autoimmune disease, like I have rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, asthma. There's so many things that have an inflammatory component. And if you calm that inflammation, then you will make them, you can make the person better. That's why steroids work because steroids, they don't decrease that inflammation. Wow. Um, so I think that's what scares people the most is the thought of having a heart attack and not having any symptoms prior to this. And I think that's really eye-opening for a lot of people to hear that they have all these, these plaques that could almost, that could rupture and occlude arteries at any second, and they might not know ahead of time. So prevention really is the key here. It is. It's important to remember that if you have that little plaque, you're going to feel nothing. You're going to feel nothing ahead of time because you can go through your normal day to day. You can go for a jog. You can do your normal activities because the blood flow overall is okay. It's just when that inflammation triggers it and it ruptures and explodes. That's the acute heart attack. That's the same thing that happened to James Gandolfini of the Sopranos or um, how can I forget her name who I love with the with the braids? Leia, Princess Leia. Oh my goodness. <laughs> People are going to like, I'm sure I'll get grief for that one. So like that's exactly what happened to those people is that they were doing fine and felt fine. Then there was too much inflammation, acute heart attack and death. All right. So we need to reduce inflammation. Do you recommend that people routinely um, check their CRP levels or any of these other markers for inflammation? Or do you more actively promote just do everything right lifestyle wise? And what's your approach? It depends. I mean, I, I check in my clinic, I do check a lot of high sensitivity CRPs, which is most specific to the heart. Um, but really they would be certain types of people that I would check it on. I don't just check every 20 year old who walks in the door with a, to check their high. So it shouldn't be part of somebody's routine blood work per se. Um, but there are specific people that I do check it on. Um, and then the key is absolutely to prevent the disease. So often people will say, well, why don't we check this? Why don't we check that? Let's get this, you know, and I have, I do have all these diagnostic tests that we can do, but the answer is often the same. Now, if it is more aggressive disease, then you'll get put on medications earlier. That's for sure. But so much of the basics and the foundation is prevention. So how do you prevent disease? Well, you have to learn to exercise you have to learn to eat better. And arguably that's maybe the most important one is to eat better. If you can learn to do that first and sort of all the other ones start falling in place, you start sleep better, you start sleeping better, you start moving more, you have more energy. So you start moving more, everything kind of falls together. So even if you start with simple things by changing what you eat, you will make a significant amount of improvement. I do a prevention clinic in my, at University of Florida and their visits are an hour long. And when I do those, I don't know when I'm going to advise to the patient, people say, well, are you going to talk to me about my diet? Well, sometimes I do. Uh, and sometimes I don't. And a lot of people need nutrition, life, nutrition education, but some people, their stress levels are so high that I have to work on de-stressing de them uh, before I can work on their nutrition. So it really just depends. But in general, if you work on somebody's nutrition, you're really going to help them out. So what would you tell a patient in regards to nutrition? What are, what foods are you advising them to include in their diet? And then what foods are you advising them to maybe reduce or eliminate? 
I think some fundamental things, I mean, there's many things that can be done. And I think the key motto that I like people to say is I like people to overall just eat more plants. Uh, I think that that's the key. If you do nothing else to your diet, at least eat more plants. And I think if that's the, that's the fundamental thing. Um, and so people say, well, I eat a salad, you know, that you show you your salad and it's like, you know, (laughs) that much of the plate and, and people think, well, I ate a salad today, I ate all those greens. Well, you know, we want people to eat five to seven servings of fruits and vegetables every single day. And a serving is not three strawberries. A serving is a cup of uncooked vegetables, a half a cup of cooked vegetables, or a baseball-sized fruit. And I say that because you got to remember that. So you also people look at their veggies and they're like, oh, I actually just ate one cup of vegetables all day. And we want people to eat five to seven servings every single day. So it just puts things into perspective. But what do I, what else do I want people to do? Well, I'd love to see everybody eliminate red meat. Um, That is um, for me, a non-starter, like red meat, there is no benefit for it. Um, There is people will say, well, I need it for the protein. Mm, No, you don't. Um, Well, I need it because it gives me energy to compete. Well, no, that's not true either. Um, You will find as much, uh, I need it for the iron. Well, there are many other sources of iron. So there's so many things you can, um, that I hear about red meat, but the reality is, is that the benefit that you think you're getting um, is not nearly what you're getting in terms of detriment, what's hurting your body in terms of your blood pressure going up, in terms of the cholesterol going up, in terms of the inflammation going up, in terms of the sodium levels going up. I mean, there's so many, the heme iron and oxidative stress going up. So all these things are happening with red meat. So I tell people, if you never ate red meat again, I would be okay with that. So, um, those are, so eat more plants, eliminate all of your red meat. Some, there, there's no story I haven't heard. So some people who are listening to that will say, oh my God, like that's impossible. Forget this. She's crazy. I'm not doing this. Well, okay. You know, I live in Florida and so I have heard every story that you think you have, you could tell me, I have heard it. I have a deer hunter in my clinic who hunts deer for a living and he's plant-based. He eats no meat. I have a Cuban in my clinic who's like, doc, I'm a meat and potatoes guy. I've eaten this way for 60 years. I'm not changing. I have people who are on a ketogenic diet who change. I have all these people who tell me and they come to this table telling me that they do these certain ways. Everybody can change. Everybody can change. Part of it is you just have to start the process. We're not trying to make everybody eat only plants necessarily, although I would love that. Uh, But we're just trying to get people to eat more plants. And if we start with some basic things like cutting out red meat and adding in more plants, then we're really going to really improve your health. And it, it just, it can be done. You just have to start the process. And that's the key one day at a time there, you, you have to meet people where they are. We don't let, I don't, I do not let perfect be the enemy of good. And I just take my time with, with people and my deer hunter eats no meat. Uh, my Cuban eats no meat. Um, and some people eat a little bit of meat and that's okay. I'm not trying to, I'm not here to judge people. I'm here to just help you get better. I love how you see so many different patients in your practice, because I find some plant-based physicians, they tend to attract patients that are already interested in being plant-based, but it seems like you have quite a broad um, group of patients that you treat in clinic. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I like it that way. I, I don't want, I think that 
if you try to make everybody into something that you want them to be, then you're going to fail. I think that you, in terms of making people feel better and doing better, I find that if I just explain to people where they are and where we need to be and where I'd like to see them following, I'm much more successful. And our compliance rates are very, very high in our clinic. Um, and our success rates are very high. Um, so I read on your website that you've come up with a five-step solution to reduce chronic disease. I was wondering if you could just quickly go through the five steps. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's a general five-step plan. It, it, it tends to be related to those five areas. So, you know, working on nutrition, working as if you could sort of fix your nutrition, fix your exercise, fix your sleep, those kind of things. And when we have the solutions, they're in more detail than that. Um, and so what we would do if, for instance, people I work with in clinic, I usually don't do all fives in one day. It, what we do is we start with one. So if somebody will walk in the door and I think that the nutrition is their biggest issue, I usually give them a five point plan on what to eat. I give them a grocery list. I give them a, this is the four options for breakfast. These are the breakfast options for lunch. These are the options for dinner. These are the options for snacks. This is what I want you to eat for six weeks. This is your grocery list, go. And then we meet back and forth on, on the phone or on email. And then after six weeks, I add in another step. And often at that point, I might add in, uh, sometimes we work on optimism, uh, which is a big problem, especially during COVID. We've seen so much sadness uh, and learning to sell, love yourself and forgive yourself for what you can and cannot do Um is something that we work hard on. Uh, I work on breathing. I work a lot of, well, I'm teaching people how to breathe. I have people send me emails that tell me that they use the breathing technique I gave them in the airport and they were so much better. I have a, a man who's full of tattoos. Um, he has so many tattoos on his body. He's kind of a biker kind of guy and he loves to journal now and he journals. And so you don't, um, there's so, you know, people defy the, the prejudice we have against them or the stereotype we associate with them. And so I go through those five steps sort of over the, over the course of their visits with me. Um, we're starting with things like nutrition, then working to with sleep, working on self-love an and optimism, uh, working on exercise and working on that mind body connection. Everything's so interrelated. And I like that you acknowledge that in your practice. I truly love how you practice medicine and I wish there were more physicians doing what you're doing. Um, <laughs> I, there's a couple things on there I want to touch on, but um, first I just have a quick question. So we were kind of talking about coronary artery disease and heart attacks and all that and reducing the risk and, um, or further having further events. But I'm just wondering um, if you have any patients um, that you've found benefit with plant-based diet that have congestive heart failure. So they're more in the, the late stages. Like, do you find there is still benefit to changing diet and have these patients, are these patients able to like improve their ejection fraction at all? Well, there's a lot of data out there that now that shows that decreasing inflammatory markers and decreasing there's relation there's um, data on TMAO, which is a, a mar metabolite that your gut makes when you eat animal products, and that if you reduce those TMAO levels, your heart failure symptoms get better. So there's data to show that we can improve your 
if you improve your diet, that you can improve people's heart failure at any stage. Uh, and that's HEF-REF or reduced ejection fraction and HEF-PEF, which is preserved ejection fraction. People whose heart pump is normal, but they still get heart failure and people who have a weakened heart. So you can, I work with patients in my clinic that are going for a heart transplant uh, and they get better and their symptoms get better. And so there's nobody that it's too late for. And there's a lot of data to show in the literature now that show eating more of a healthy, cleaner, plant-based diet is key. You know, I don't, I also don't sweat the small stuff. I would say, you know, people say, well, I like to eat a little bit of chicken or I like to eat a little bit of turkey or I like a little bit of this or a little bit. I don't care. I mean, my key is to keep that foundation very healthy, which is eating mostly greens, some fruits, mostly greens, some fruits, beans, green, as I always tell people, greens, green, beans, greens, nuts, and seeds. So nuts, seeds, um, and really sort of getting people to eat mostly all those kind of legumes and healthy foods. Then I'm going to get people overall, I'm going to improve their quality of life. I'm going to improve their heart failure symptoms. I'm going to improve their heart disease. So the answer to your question, long-winded ways was, is that yes, you can improve somebody's heart failure at any stage by eating healthier. Awesome. That's amazing. We're definitely not taught that. I'll tell you a fun story. Uh, I have a patient. It's not that I don't believe in the medicines too, though. And I think that's very important. The mm -hmm. medicines really work. So these patients, patients need to be on their medications for heart failure, but the combination is, will blow you away. I have this woman in my clinic when I first met her, uh, she has a heart pump in. So she has a heart pump in. So that means that her heart doesn't work effectively and she's waiting for a heart transplant, but she had too much weight on her to get a transplant. And uh, she was sent to me to kind of help with her overall health. And she has this pump in, so the pump does all the work of the heart. So it's like a, it's like a mechanical heart almost. And um, she came to me in clinic, and at the time she was not getting out of bed almost at all. And her husband, they had the most beautiful relationship, her husband and wife. I just, uh, I'm amazed. And he would come and bring her all her meals in bed. And she'd lay there in bed and then she had a 10 year old boy and she'd hang out with the boy where the boy would sit and watch television on the bed next to her so they could be together and spend time together. And then the husband would take the boy to school. And so some of the first processes of working with this patient was I had to get her out of the bed. And then you would, and then every single, I would meet with her every couple of weeks, you know, working on this many hours, you can be in the bed, this many hours, you have to be out of bed today. You have to write, you have to make a meal because the process of cooking and making your own food is very important. Today, I want you to write in your journal, those kind of things. And then what happened was, I, I mean, I pictures, which is so fun. She came in in this frumpy shirt and didn't take care of herself, was really overweight and very, very tired and very sad. And I would tell you maybe six or nine months later, she came in. She's like, I wanted to show you. And, you know, she had a heart pump, has a battery pack, and she'd be way down by the battery pack. I told her to buy this cute little backpack. When she came in at nine months, I mean, we're working all along. At nine months, she came in. She was dressed in these gorgeous pants, this really nice shirt, earrings, her hair was done. She was wearing makeup. She had her, her battery pack in her, in her uh, backpack. And she had, she always, she uses a walker. I didn't say that, but she's, she came in with no walker and she had a little cane. Wow. And I, and she said, this is because of you. And I remember that day and I thought, okay, this is why I do this because it makes all the difference. I understand like you've done so much incredible work with your patients, but that's um, a testament to how much work that woman put in as well. Like that's not easy to do. And that's, she deserves a lot of credit. What an incredible change. Um, yeah, I mean, I would, sometimes I would give her a job of this week. I want you to get to the mall. 
I want you to go to the mall with your friends. You have to go there for one hour at least. And that's it. I don't want you to stay for longer. I just want you to go for an hour. But little things, sometimes giving people joy back and giving them hope is so important. And one of the things that I learned from being a patient is my rheumatologist gave me no hope. And hope is a powerful thing. He said, I will never come off medications. He said, my disease was incurable and that my prognosis was poor. And that is a horrible thing to hear as the patient. And so it's not that you don't want realism. Realism is important, but you also want people to have hope. And I think that that's maybe what I learned. Most important lesson I learned from being a patient is to never take away someone's hope. Thank you for sharing that. That's a good message. I'll keep that in mind as I progress through my own training. Um, I'd love to jump back a little bit. You talked about um, teaching patients to breathe properly. Um, and I, I love that. I'm really into breath work right now. And I, I also understand you do a bit of yoga, like, um, yoga practice with your patients. Can you just touch on that a little bit? Um, I find it a very fascinating area. Sure, sure. So yeah, breath work, I think is super important because so many people have forgotten how to breathe and don't know how to calm themselves down. Um, and I think that learning how to breathe and helps you so much in terms of self-focus and gets rid of all the noise in your head. Um, and so I, I do focus a lot on that because it helps with focus. It helps with memory. It helps with calming and slowing down the heart rate, bringing down the blood pressure and then decreasing stress. So it's like this amazing process. Um, and so I tell people, often to use Andy Wiles technique, which is the four, seven, eight breathing, um, and which is inhale for four, hold it for seven and exhale for eight. What I do in between is I tell them to do some sort of mantra or chant or something, say something positive to themselves. So I always tell people what I do with my kids is I say to my kids, we say together after we breathe in between, we say, I am good. I am strong. I am loved. And so those are the, that's what we say after each breath. And we do 10 breaths. My kids usually only make it to six and they're passed out. But the process just calms them down. It calms the mind down. It makes you focus because focus is very important. And you can remind, think about times in your life when you're just driving in the car and how your mind is like all over the place about every little nonsense thing that's happening in your life and every worry and anxiety. Well, that doesn't help you at all. But think about times when you've been totally focused, where you're just focusing on one thing. And when you do that, all that other extraneous stuff goes away. And it's times when you're totally focused that that extraneous stuff falls away that you feel most good, right? Because you're not listening, you're not listening to that jibber jabber in your head. And so I find that when you use use that breathing technique of just taking those big breaths in and letting those breaths out. Um, you're really focusing in on the breath and, um, you're not focused on anything else and boy, does your mind quiet down. And so you can use many different techniques that are out there there. You can do the four, seven, eight that Andy does. You can do, uh, I was, sometimes I tell people do five in five, hold five exhale, all of which are fine. And then what happens is, is that you don't have to make it complicated, but it's just some concept of get taking the breaths in. Often I tell people breathe through your nose when you breathe in and exhale through your breath, your, your mouth when you breathe out. Um, and that helps people and don't rush. It's not a, <gasps> or a, it's not a fast, it's a slow breath and you should hear the breath come out of somebody's mouth. It shouldn't be because people are like embarrassed about their breath, which is such a funny thing, you know? And maybe I was too at one point, but when you take a breath out, you shouldn't be like, <sighs> that's quiet. What you really want to hear is somebody go, <sighs> 
And just doing that, even that one second that I did that with you on the, while we're on this podcast, I know my heart rate is down just from that one moment in time. And I do that with my patients in clinic. A lot of patients come in, especially young people come in with very fast heart rates and their hearts are totally fine. And I've done the tests and their hearts are fine. And often it's just high levels of stress. And I teach them how to breathe and meditate. And when I teach them that they come back in and say, okay, it went away. I love that. Um, I find it so fascinating because truly controlling the breath is a way to, in a sense, control our um, autonomic nervous systems and kind of deactivate that sympathetic. And it's, it's one of the only things that we can actually have control over and change our state. So I've been experimenting a lot with it lately. And I love some of those suggestions there. Do them with your patients. You'll see, even when you start clinicals, the medical student is always in a really unique place. And you think that like you don't have a role, but the medical student actually has a great role because they don't have any responsibilities really as yet. And that's not meant to be a funny comment. It just means that it really gives you that time to spend with the patients, even in the hospital. And take that time, take that time seriously and spend time sitting on patients' beds and talking to them and spending, teaching them some of the stuff like breath work and how to eat healthy. And you will see that you will have made the biggest impact. You don't need, you won't need to, it won't come out in any medications or any tests or any discharge information that you did this stuff, but you will know because you will have made that impact. And if you, in those teachable moments in the hospital, which are very, very important times, uh, people really are amenable to change. Thank you. I'll definitely remember that as I progress through and hopefully any other uh, students listening will remember, remember that as well. Um, yeah, I'd like to just kind of, I know we're close on time here, but just a couple more things I'd like to ask you about. And while we're on the topic of advice for medical students, um, you are a female cardiologist and it's, it shouldn't be, but um, it is a male dominant dominated field. And I would love to just hear if you have any advice for um, myself or any other female medical students going through training and looking to pursue a, a specialty in internal medicine. Yeah, it's always a tricky question. I mentor a lot of girls and women and um, I, I struggle at some point in my life, actually, I chose not to mentor women. Um, because I wasn't sure that I was the right mentor for them. Um, that's changed over time because now I understand my role, but there was a time where I, I wasn't sure that I could give people good advice. I think that, I think that medicine is a complicated field. I think that subspecialty medicine is a complicated world. I think that there's expectations, for instance, in cardiology, um, 12% of cardiologists are women. That's it. And so, uh, and I think that the demands on us as women and mothers and wives and physicians is so immense. And then to add in that subspecialty, high acuity care is very, very hard. There was at one point in my life, I would have told women not to go into cardiology because I thought that it wasn't, it's too hard. It's too much. I think now I've changed because what I, I, what I've learned is, is that people in people, the new generations are strong and they're strong. The women are strong and they're not afraid to say what they need. Whereas maybe 10 or 15 years ago we were, and I admire the future generations of women who have that confidence and understanding of themselves and use your power, use that power to, to and tell people what it is you want 
And I think that that's the key. And I think that's the key to remember because you have so much to add, so much value to add. You know, you, as a woman, you are a better doctor. Women are better doctors in general. They're more sympathetic. Um, Patients in general often will take and prefer female doctors. Um, We're often better clinically. And so you have a lot of power. You have a lot to offer as a woman. You just have to know what you want. And I think that that's sometimes the hardest thing, but also the most important thing. And I think in a field could bet a field like ours and mine can really benefit from more of us. And so I welcome um, more women. And that's why I mentor women in cardiology uh, actively now. I did write an article um, called My Voice. You might look it up. My Voice, it's in um, the Journal of American College of Cardiology um, case reports. If you just type in Agarwal, my voice, it should come up uh, and I'll send it to you if I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, it might help you and it might help your medical student friends who are women um, to kind of see what life is like. Amazing. Thank you. And I'll definitely add that uh, article to the show notes so people can just click on it down below. So um, just as we round out the conversation, I can't let you go. Um, just but I want to hear a little bit about your time competing in triathlon. Um, you're an incredible athlete and um, I like to focus, talk a little bit about sport performance on this podcast as well. So we don't have much time, but can you maybe just share like maybe what was the hardest part about training and what you've learned from competing in triathlon? So I love um, competing and I'm obsessed with sports. Uh, I wish I had more time. I think the hardest part about training for a sport is the lack of time mm-hmm. uh, and wanting to sort of be so many different things. And again, as women, we tend to want and take that role seriously of wearing all of our hats and the guilt comes very, uh, very easily to us, it seems, or at least to me. Um, so I think that, um, training for a triathlon was probably one of the best thing I, you know, I've done marathons as well, but I think the triathlon was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I love that because I'm actually not a very good swimmer and I had to learn how to swim and I had to learn how to swim right and efficiently and to learn a skill when you're older is that's not related to your specialty is fabulous and hard and, uh, is humbling. And I impress upon everyone to find something that humbles them because it's important to be humbled in your life. And that, that swimming humbled me. And it's not that I didn't know how to swim. It's just that I wasn't efficient. I didn't really know how to do it. Well, I was always exhausted. I said, how can I run five miles and I can't swim five laps, you know? And so I had to learn how to be efficient in swimming. And I had to hire a swim coach actually to teach me how about efficiency of swimming. And that was really amazing because I was always a runner. Biking was easy for me, but learn, I had to learn to be humbled. I fell off my bike so many times because I wasn't used to riding such a thin wheel bike or in a, in terms of a racing bike. Um, you know, there's just so many lessons in exercise and in pushing yourself and expecting from yourself, but also not having any real goals. Like I didn't, want to be the first in line. I just want to finish, you know, I just wanted to do it and I didn't compete against myself. And that was also great because I wasn't trying to get, Oh, I'm going to get this done in X number of minutes. No, I just wanted to do it. And when I came out of the water after my, you know, the first time I swam, I remember, and in, in, during the competition, my husband has a picture and I actually have that on my, on my court, my board, because it makes me smile because I was so happy. I, I'm so, I, I can't believe how I was smiling. Like I'd just done this major swim and I was smiling because 
the amount of work you put into something like that and to then succeed at your own goal without no one else has put any pressure on me. No one else to put a goal on me. It was my own thing. I did it and I felt great. It was something I chose to do. There's nothing like it. So I believe that, um, exercise is super important. Coming up with a goal is very important. Coming up with a sport that humbles you is very important. And I do a lot of yoga and yoga humbles me every day. Um, and so I, um, I love that. I think having that humility is important. Uh, and then learning how to heal, to treat your body, especially if you're going to eat mostly plants, you really have to know how to eat when you are exercising a lot. And so learning how to eat loads and loads of greens and to eat tofu and tempeh and lots of beans to increase your, so you don't feel hungry all the time are super important. And you have time for recovery with electrolytes. All that stuff is very important, very easily done. There are so many Olympians um, that are um, plant-based and you can follow them. Their regimens are often online. Um, Actually, I'm talking to Dotsie Bosch next week or in two weeks. And, you know, I was looking for forward to that because, you know, she's a plant-based, you know, bicyclist, you know, cyclist. And it's just so fun to see these fabulous Olympians be plant-based. And I think just recently, one of the runners uh, who won in uh, Japan is hundred percent plant-based. And I I have that article somewhere too, that I was going to post um, but they, he was all hundred percent plant-based. Some of the biggest bodybuilders are all plant-based. So you can eat you can eat plants and be super strong, super healthy, super efficient. Um, but it's not about being an Olympian. Most of us aren't going to be Olympians. I'm not going to be an Olympian. I don't care about that. I just want to get healthier. And I, I like to have a challenge and I like to challenge myself in a, in a, out of my comfort zone. So because I'm a runner, that becomes my easy place. But when I do yoga or I bicycle or I swim, I hate it and love it all together because it, it is so hard for me to do well at it. Uh, I went to yoga after a long time last week and I told my husband that it felt like I'd come home because it did. Amazing. So, so much good advice in there. So inspirational. I think that's an amazing spot to leave it. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Um, if anyone is listening, would like to reach out, connect with you, follow what you're doing, where can they find you? So if you uh, have social media, so I use Twitter, uh, Dr. M Agarwal, uh, it's the two G's on the Agarwal, uh, Dr. Monica Agarwal in Instagram and Facebook. So they're all there. And then um, I have a website that I, I'm not great about using, although that's one of my goals for this year is to improve that. Uh, and I, there's an email on there. So you can contact me through that. Amazing. And be sure to everyone check out her book as well, Body on Fire. It's a great read and available everywhere. So thank you again. This has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. Good talking to you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Plant Fueled Podcast. Just a reminder, be sure to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and details on how to connect with our guest. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and share the show with friends, family, or anyone else who may benefit. And one small favor, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star rating or review wherever you are listening. It helps other people discover the show and spread this information. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Anyways, be sure to move your body, eat some plants, be grateful for the little things, and until next time.